Well, good morning. How was your Christmas? Was it nice? Well, good. I can tell you're moving a little slower today, so it must have been good. We had a great Christmas. My son was sick on most of Christmas, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and he woke up yesterday and he said, God didn't answer my prayer. I prayed that I'd be better for Christmas, but he also prayed that it would be a white Christmas. And um, when he said that, I thought, yeah, right, that's never going to happen. And then to wake up and see snowflakes falling Christmas morning, I thought, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Let's turn to Jeremiah 29. That's right, Jeremiah 29. We take a little path of diversion this morning. Hard to imagine that in six days you're going to be dating your checks zero, zero. Already. And you'll see if your computers can do that as well. (laughs) It is the year 2000 coming up on us, or Y2K as it has been said. And uh, I remember as a child, I bet some of you did this as well, wondering what it would be like. I would lay in bed and say, now how old will I be in the year 2000? Will I be alive? Who will I be married to? How many children will I have? What will I be doing? And I was way wrong in all of my predictions. And then I wondered if we'd even make it this far. Here we are. A thousand years ago, that would be Y1K, wouldn't it? People were wondering the same thing. There was a fervor of the new millennial transition. People even said the world would end. And uh, somebody sent me a, a, it's a fictitious memo from the year zero right before the year zero, Y0K memo. It's addressed to Cassius. Dear Cassius, are you still working on the Y0K problem? This change from B.C. to A.D. is giving us lots of headaches. We haven't much time left. I don't know how people will cope with working the wrong way around. You would think that someone would have thought of it earlier and not left it to us to sort it all out at the last minute. I spoke to Caesar the other evening. He was livid that Julius had done nothing about it when he was the one sorting out the calendar. He said he could see why Brutus turned so nasty. So we called in Consultus. But he simply said that counting downward using minus BC won't work. As usual, charge and as usually charged a fortune for doing nothing useful. Macro hard will make yet another fortune out of this, I suppose. As for myself, I just can't see the sand in an hourglass moving upward. We have heard that there are three wise men in the East who have been working on this problem, but unfortunately, they won't arrive till it's all over. I've heard that there are plans to stable all the horses at midnight at the turn of the year, as there are fears that they will stop and try to run backwards, (laughs) causing immense damage to chariots and possible the loss of life. Some say the world will cease to exist at the moment of transition, signed Plutonius. All of that aside, I've had you turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, which is to us a very relevant passage for this threshold where we're sitting today looking into not only a new 
year, but a new century and a new millennium. Why? Because Israel is in a 70-year captivity. They have just gotten there. Their future seems very uncertain, to many very bleak. And Jeremiah gives them ways to handle their future, things to do, how to be ready for it. Essentially, Jeremiah 29 is a letter written by the prophet Jeremiah to the group of Israelites who have been displaced from their homes in Jerusalem, taken 500 miles to the east, living now in Babylon. In fact, verse 1, there is the setting. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, to the prophets, to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. The letter here that we studied this morning, a few verses of it, they're relevant to us because as Christians we are living in a world, uh, the, the captivity was 70 years long, the general lifespan is about 70 years of age, a little better for some, a little less for others. But many of the people who were going to get this letter would never live to see the end of the captivity. They would die before the 70 years was up. They were in their middle life. They had raised children or they were newly married. And so they probably wouldn't live the whole 70 years. And so here they are perched in another country, uncertain about the future. And Jeremiah gives them four ways to be ready for whatever happens. And that's what we want to look at today. Four things to do. And you don't have an outline in your bulletin, but I'll give them to you. Be responsible, be careful, be mindful, and be spiritual. First of all, look with me at verse 4 where the letter begins. Verses 4 to verse 7 is essentially be responsible where you are. Listen to how Jeremiah puts it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens, eat their fruit. Take wives, beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters and you may be increased there and not diminished and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it for in its peace you will have peace. They were to be responsible 500 miles from home living in Babylon. The responsibilities included a few things. First of all, provide for your family. Get a home, get a job, get married. In other words, get a life in Babylon. Don't sit there thinking back to what Jerusalem used to be like without planning for your future right where you are in the foreign soil where you are occupying it. Get a life there. Second, they were to have children and notice grandchildren. I bet a lot of them were thinking the same way a lot of people think today. You know, they live in Babylon. It's a pretty idolatrous society, spiritually dark, very violent. And I bet some of them were thinking, now is not the time to have children. This is a very precarious society we live in. 
And I've heard people say that today. It's so wicked out there. It's so dark out there. It's so violent. All the more reason to have children. Light shines in the darkest places. A woman came up to me in our church some time back, and she and her husband already had several kids. And she came up very, very pregnant, great with child. I looked at her and said, Another child, huh? And she said, yes, and this world needs the kind of children we can produce. I thought, great perspective. This world needs light bulbs, as dark as it is. Third thing they were to do, notice in verse 7, is to get involved in their community so that they could live a peaceful life. God says, seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. They were to be involved in their culture, in their society, in their city. As foreign, as opposite as it was from their own back in Jerusalem, as ungodly as it was, they were to be involved in two ways. By their actions and by their prayers. By their actions and by their prayers. Some are very socially involved in their culture. Yet they never pray. They're all into social action. Let's change the world. Let's get culturally relevant. And that's only part of it. The other part is to pray. Spiritual proactivity. But then there are people who pray, 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 but never do anything beyond that. I see here a healthy mix of both. That's how you're responsible where you live. A healthy mix of both. R.W. Dale once said, Work without prayer is atheism, but prayer without work is presumption. Both were needed. I bet that there were some pious Jews who were living in Babylon when they heard this letter. They thought that to be involved in Babylonia was a sellout. Hey, we're Jewish people. We belong to the Lord God. We live in Jerusalem. These people are pagan worshipers. They're idolaters. They're ungodly. I'm not going to get involved in this culture. This isn't my home. And so they became very separatist in their outlook. When God said, I want you to be involved so that you can have peace and influence your culture. The United States of America has 768 ships docked in harbors presently that's known as the Mothball Navy. They're sitting there. They get treatment regularly. They get a fresh coat of paint on the exterior of the ship quite regularly. Electrical impulses bombard the hull to prevent rust and corrosion. Humidifiers are set within the the ship's interior so that the right humidity is kept, the right balance of air. In other words, these are ships that are sitting there and they could be readied for battle in a very short period of time. Until then, they just sit there and do nothing. I wonder how many mothball believers fill churches in our country. Oh, at a moment's notice, in a short period of time, they could be activated if there was a crisis, but other than that, they're just snugly harbored within the four walls of the church. God says, while you're in Babylon, be active. Pray for the place you live and get involved in it. Let me give you a couple examples of believers who did this. I think quite successfully. 
There are more we could give, but two come to mind because they're so prominent in Scripture. They were not mothball believers. The first is Joseph. You know his story. He was a kid sold by his brothers to the Midianites. He ends up in Egypt. He becomes what? Prime minister of the entire country, literally the world. He prevents a famine because of the wisdom with which he managed the grain that was coming in and out of Egypt. So he left a great legacy of involvement, though he was spiritual and he loved his God and he didn't compromise. He was very active in his society. In fact, he even named one of his kids after the experience. Ephraim means fruitful. And when the baby came out, he says, I'm going to name him Ephraim because God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. My prayer for you is that this next year, you'll be more fruitful than ever. Not a mothball believer, but active in your culture, spiritually, as well as with action. Another example that is very similar to Joseph is Daniel. And and I picked him because um, the setting of our chapter this morning is Babylon. Daniel was a teenager and went to Babylon. He was there 70 years. He was there for the entire stint of the captivity. And his influence spanned three separate generations. Nebuchadnezzar, who's mentioned in verse 1, his grandson Belshazzar, even into the reign of Darius of the Medes and the Persians. This was a kid who grew to be an old man and was third ruler in the kingdom. Second at one time, third later on under Darius. Very influential, very spiritual, and also uncompromising. I have discovered... And I've, uh, I've listed three. I've discovered three possible responses that I have watched Christians have toward their culture. Having seen how many of us respond to what's going on around us, there are three, I think. Wh- which category are you in? First of all, there's intimidation. A lot of us are awfully intimidated. The world is so big. A lot of bad stuff going on out there. I'm so insignificant. I'm so small. Uh, What could I ever do to make a difference? It's so intimidating, the spiritual need around me. And so that can tend toward inactivity, intimidation. Second response that many have is isolation. Isolation. Because it is so evil, because the world seems so wicked, it is my duty to protect myself from it. Myself and my family, and I'm going to find a convenient Christian hole to crawl in and hide and be completely irrelevant. Third response. This is the best one. I believe it's the biblical one. Infiltration. Not intimidation. Not isolation. Infiltration. It's taking a healthy appraisal of the world and saying, boy, is this world broken, but I got the glue. I've got answers to it. My life's been changed. I want to infiltrate this world and make a difference with Jesus Christ, with the gospel. Infiltration. Otherwise, we run the risk of becoming a church like the one that the newspaper in the Midwest wrote about. In their announcement column, the newspaper said, We are pleased to announce that the cyclone which blew away the church last Friday did no real damage to the town. Sad, isn't it? The church is gone. At least there's no damage. Edmund Burke once wrote, All that is necessary for evil to abound is for good people to do nothing. 
Nothing. Let's get out of the mothballs this coming year. Let's get into active service for the Lord in our community and see what God can do. He wants us to be involved, as Jesus said, occupy until I come. You know, if you look backwards, here we are looking forward, but but just think back to a, a few times when it was the Christian church that rose to the occasion to meet the need in society. All of the mercy ministries, where'd they come from? Hospitals. Who started asylums and hospitals? It wasn't the National Atheistic Associations. It was always Christian organizations. People who had a heart for the downtrodden in society. What about slavery? It was always the Christians who fought against it. Now, sad to say there were some involved in it, or they called themselves believers, but it was William Wilberforce in England. Love God. Love the gospel. He's the guy that started the first free slave settlement in Sierra Leone. Charles Finney, the preacher of the gospel, revivalist lawyer back in New York, his followers fought against slavery because the message so impacted their lives. They made a difference in their culture. So being responsible where you are involves prayer and action where you live. Very practical stuff. Remember, Jesus said, I was hungry and you you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was naked. You clothed me. I was in prison. You visited me. And some said, when were you ever in prison? When were you ever naked? When were you ever hungry? And you know the answer Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. A poor lady went to a British vicar and asked for some help some food, some money. She needed to be taken care of. She needed some kind of help. The vicar brushed her off and said, "Uh, I'll pray for you. And so she wrote back this letter. I was hungry, and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. I was imprisoned, and you crept off quietly to your chapel and prayed for my release. I was naked, and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, And you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me of the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God, but I am still very hungry and lonely and cold. Tough words, but true. And so God says to his people, be responsible where you are in your culture. Second, be careful. Be careful who you listen to. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets, that's a tongue-in-cheek prophet way of saying it at least. It's a false prophet as you'll see. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. These were false prophets. Jeremiah was a true prophet. How do we know? Because everything he said happened. Good indication, isn't it? He was the guy that told the children of Israel, You're going into captivity for 70 years. God told me that. I'm telling you that. Now, there were were another group of prophets who were coming to the children of Israel saying, Oh, no, 
God only has prosperity and peace for His children. He would never let you go into captivity. Jeremiah go, wrong. You're going. And when the Babylonians came and surrounded the city, the false prophets said, oh, they'll go away. Jeremiah said, "Uh uh-uh, they're going to get you. Then when they finally went into captivity, the false prophets showed up again and said, oh, you'll be here maybe two years, max. Then you'll be going back. Jeremiah says, guess again. You're going to be here for a full 70 years. One of the most important things we all need as we face our future is discernment. What we listen to. What we allow ourselves to entertain, emulate as an example. Remember, David in Psalm 1 said, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. A lot of ungodly folks want to give you counsel. It might be well-meaning counsel. It might be from a relative or a friend who just has your best interest, they think, at heart. Be careful. Be selective. Jesus said, take heed what you hear. But he also said, consider carefully how you listen. Consider what, what Americans listen to and emulate as a role model. One psychologist named Carol Moog was commenting on the fact that the list of athletes that Americans most admire include Mike Tyson and O.J. Simpson. Still. She was commenting on that interesting fact, and she wrote, Americans have elevated celebrity and fame to such a ridiculous status that they cannot accept it when a hero commits a crime. So be very careful, selective in what you entertain that goes into your ears that you listen to. You know, being open-minded isn't always a virtue. It can be dangerous many times. There's a lot of people who are dispensers of garbage. They're looking for minds so open, just wide open, that they can just come in and dump the garbage into. Be careful who you listen to. Two quick ways to spiritual disaster. Don't take anybody's advice. Number two, take everybody's advice. Either way, it's a mistake. It's the wrong end of the spectrum. Some people fold their arms, don't allow anybody through the walls of their persona. They're safely tucked away. They don't need anybody's advice. Very dangerous place to live. That's an isolationist. It's like the guy who went to the golf pro to get a lesson, and the golf pro uh, set him up and asked the guy to swing. The guy swang a few times, and the golf pro started talking about what could be improved. And the guy getting the lesson started interrupting. He'd take a swing and he'd say, now the way I see it and what I think. And so the golf pro eventually just let the guy talk and just said, yeah, right, good. Think and took the guy's money. The man shook the golf pro's hand and said, you're, you're a great teacher and walked away. And an observer looking at this whole thing said, why did you let this guy get away with that? The golf pro said, I have learned long ago that it's a waste of time to sell answers to somebody who only wants to buy echoes. Don't live that way. Don't be like so many who come into church offices around this city and this country 
And they say they want counsel, but really what they want is they've got the counsel. You agree with me, do you not? Please tell me I'm doing what's right. Don't tell me anything else. That's a recipe for disaster. But also, if you listen to everybody's advice, because everybody out there has an opinion how you ought to live, go ask the person you've been witnessing to in your office how you ought to live. They'll tell you something very different. They'll say, oh, well, I think you're a little too spiritual. Carry the Bible around, quote Bible verses. I've known people, they've gone crazy doing that, you know. You go, oh, really? I better not then. We have to be selective. Advice is like medicine. It's good, but it has to be the right kind. And too much of it, you can overdose. So be careful who you listen to. Third, be mindful of your transients. Be mindful of your transients. Look at verse 10. There's the balance to the first point. Thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Skip down a few verses and look at verse 14. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. That's the balance. Yes, get involved. Yes, get a life. Yes, have children, grandchildren, and all that stuff. But you're only going to be here 70 years. After 70 years, as a nation... I'm going to turn all of you back to inhabit the land from which I drove you from. So, have a light touch. Involvement, yes. But have a light touch at the same time. You know, you and I are passing through this globe. Have a light touch. You're here, maybe 70 years, maybe more. By God's good grace, maybe to 100. Maybe you don't want to live that long. But we have a period of time, and after this is over, the captivity, in a sense, is over. We have a whole new kingdom to look forward to. You've heard the old cliche, life is short. The older you get, it's not a cliche. You know what I'm talking about? You know, when you're five years old, a month is like, goodness, this is going to last forever. And then years just tick by the older you get. And it's... 2,000 already in six days. Amazing. Before you were saved, you didn't think much about eternity, did you? It was all about now. How much fun can I have now? Forget about later. Now is what's important. That's a mistake because we always have to view where we're at and what we're doing in the light of what's after this, eternity. One author wrote about this in this fashion, quote, The kingdom of darkness is like a wrecked ship sinking fast. When the captain knows his ship is lost, he goes to all the passengers and announces, You are free to do whatever you want. Anyone who wants to drink, help yourself at the bar. It's all free. If you want to play soccer in the dining room, go ahead. You break the lamps, don't worry about it. And the passengers say, What a nice captain we have. We can do whatever we want to on this ship. But they will all be dead in a few minutes. That's how it works, folks. 
Satan would love to get you to forget about the concept of eternity and think all about now. So you think, you know, the devil, he's not that bad. He lets me do whatever I want to do. It's because he knows you're going to be dead. And so the wise way to live is with an eternal perspective, involvement, yes, but knowing, well, it's very temporary. We are transients. We are passing through. We have another kingdom. Listen to what James wrote. You're familiar with it, James chapter 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this city and that city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor. It's your life. Describe your life. It appears for a little time, vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Your life is so temporary that Paul called your body, do you remember the metaphor he used? A tent. You're living in a tent. You're camping right now. I don't know how much you've done camping. I, I once camped for two months. You know, after about a week, got real old. A warm shower after a week. You think you lasted that long without a shower? But I'll tell you what, camping is fun, but you want something permanent. And we're camping. We don't want to drive our stakes too deeply into this soil. So it's all about what we get here and what we do here. Be mindful of your transients. Um, the worst way to live as a believer is to live on the edge of God's property. I'll explain what I mean. Yeah, you, you've come to Jesus Christ, you've raised your hand, you said the prayer, you're going to Bible study, but you're sort of on the edge of the property still. In other words, you have enough of Jesus in you to be miserable in the world like you used to be, but you've got enough of the world still left in you to be miserable in Christ. You're just miserable all the way around. It's like the farmer who had a tree on the edge of his property and he pointed to it and he said, that tree is the most beat up tree I own because I beat it every day to get the apples on my side, but because it's hanging over the edge of my property, all the passerbys, they beat it too and the things beat from both sides. Christians can be like that. They live so close to the lake of fire that their sails get singed. You know what I mean? Get in closer. Make the commitment deeper. Live transiently. Fourth and finally, be spiritual in your outlook. Be spiritual in your outlook. Verse 11 through 13, and we'll close with this. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, Go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Those verses have a, a comfort and a challenge, don't they? It's a comfort because God's inmost thoughts of love are expressed toward us. It's a challenge because this is how we should respond to it, a spiritual outlook in life. Have you ever wondered what God thinks about you? 
I know God loves you. He's supposed to do that, right? He's God. But does he like you? Ever wonder that? Right about now, the children of Israel were wondering about that. They were probably thinking, you know, whatever God's thinking about me, it's not favorable. He's really ticked. He warned us. Now he's judging us. There's no hope for our future. And so God says, excuse me. Let me tell you what I'm thinking about you. Good thoughts, not evil thoughts. I I have a plan. I have a purpose. I have a future for you. Have you noticed how prone we are as human beings to impose our wrong thought patterns onto God? You know, we do that with people, don't we? We go, I know what you're thinking. And then you tell them, they go, I wasn't thinking that at all. And a lot of us do that with God. I know what you're thinking, God. There's no hope for me. You have evil thoughts about me. No, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about all the good plans I have for you. To give you a future and a hope. I love what God says in Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Even the captivity was designed to bring them back to God. It's like getting a 70-year spanking as a nation. Okay, they sinned against God. Okay, they followed idols. Okay, they profaned the name of God. But I love them so much that I'm going to use this captivity to bring them to their knees so that I can bring them back and give them a blessing. That was God's heart. That was His intention. God has a future for you. God has a plan for each one of you. question is, are you aligned with His plan and His purpose? It's a new year. It's a new century. Man, it's a new millennium coming up. You might say, well, technically the millennium doesn't begin until 2001. Oh, forget it. It's a new year. How's that? That's what I love about the new year. Fresh start. A man was reading the newspaper one day, and he noticed his name in the obituary column, which angered him greatly because he was not dead. So he walked into the newspaper office, talked to the editor, and said, man, you guys made a colossal mistake. I'm alive. My name's in the obituary column. This is very embarrassing. I'm going to go to the store or go to the restaurant and see my friends who think I'm dead. And I could lose business because of this. Well, the editor apologized. But the man was irate, unreasonable. I demand you do something. The editor said, tell you what, cheer up. Tomorrow morning, I'll put your name in the birth column and give you a whole new start. (laughs) You know, I kind of like that. I like that because God does that. God says, tell you what, I'll write your name in my book of life and give you a new birth, born again. You come to me, all of the crud of the past, I'll deal with right now, and I'll give you a new start. Good deal. 